Hi everyone, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima. And today we once again have the privilege of talking to a recurring expert in our talk show series, Asby Brown in Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining, Asby. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. And in our initial talk, I believe, we did talk about SafeCast, and today's talk is connected to your work with SafeCast. We've also talked about your wonderful books on architecture and the Edo era uh, lifestyle in Japan. You have a lot of different fields of expertise, but today we're talking about your work with SafeCast and about the Fukushima Daiichi water discharge. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. So. Yeah, so it'd be great if、uh, we can talk about some of the key issues, maybe make it a bit easier to understand. A lot、mm -hmm. of it, of course, is very technical.、Um, can you just start with like, a general introduction about SafeCast and how SafeCast is involved in making、uh, this kind of recommendation or information? Sure. Well,、uh, I think most of your audience、uh, knows about the、uh, huge disaster, the earthquake and tsunami, and then the、uh, Fukushima nuclear power plant、uh, disaster that、uh, began in March 2011.、Uh, and immediately after that,、uh, my colleagues uh, uh, who actually began SafeCast、uh, were, were concerned about finding、uh, accurate radiation information. And I was in, in、uh, Tokyo and Yokohama, is where my home is at the time, and also was、uh, looking for information, trying to find out what's going on, because what we were seeing reported by government and media didn't seem to be complete at all.、Uh, lots of questions were remaining.、Um, you know, there would be some spotty information about、uh, radiation, for instance, in parts of Fukushima, but、uh, we had colleagues who were measuring in Tokyo. Uh, and said, hey, you know, there's a spike of radiation today. And this was not like reported in the media either. So we're saying, wow, you know,、uh, is something being hidden or, or, or is there a, a way to get good information? And ultimately, SafeCast was born uh, from that uh, concern. Uh, and after trying to just collect,、um, you know, information, aggregate radiation measurements from different places on the internet,、uh, we decided that we would have to do the measurement ourselves. And Invented a series of devices called the B Geige, which stands for Bento Geiger Counter. And these、uh, paired a Geiger Counter with GPS and data logging. So just by driving around with it or walking around with it, you can make a map of radiation. And this、uh, you know, really had a large impact, immediately had a very large impact.、Uh, certainly, you know, in, by the middle of 2011, it was noticed a lot、uh, in media and around the world. And、um, by the following year, we had gotten about a million data points already, most of them in Japan.、Uh, and the project just grew and grew and grew and eventually became、uh, a, a large international citizen science project. And for us, A key point has always been that our data is open,、uh, 
Anybody can use it for anything that our system designs, the hardware designs, the software, the mapping, all of that stuff is all open source. It's available for anyone. And we believe that's uh, the best way to foster innovation and also to foster participation. So anyone who has a question about, well, where's this data come from? How do they figure this out? How's this calculated? Anybody can go and look uh, at our, you know, the information we have about the system and, and find out for themselves. And you basically they don't need to take it uh, on our word about any of it. They can find out for themselves. So this is, you know, what SafeCast began uh, doing really was about measurement. And we now also have a, a large, air quality program, uh, a new line of sensors that we launched uh, a few months ago back in March at the 10th anniversary of SafeCast and also the disaster. Uh, so we have, you know, a lot of air quality data now as well. Uh, but we soon found that a lot of what people needed was help understanding the issues, help understanding uh, what the numbers mean, uh, what's normal, what's abnormal, at what point should they start getting worried, et cetera. So the educational side, the outreach side, and the research side uh, ended up taking, uh, you know, a larger, uh, you know, proportion of our of our energy and effort. And my role is the lead researcher. So I've been studying many issues regarding the Fukushima disaster, environmental radiation, certainly ocean issues, certainly this water issue for years and, and commenting on it. Um, while, while you were talking, I was showing uh, the SafeCast website right now, and that is all open source data. If you look at safecast.org, um, I believe, or a safe desk. What is yeah, safecast.org? That yes. org, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can see not only what we're talking about today, the PDF report with all the links, but you can also mm -hmm. see the map of all the data, right? Right. right. But you yes. don't have any um, reporting from the ocean, which is kind of connected to what we're talking about, right? Just on well, land. Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, if you look at the SafeCast radiation map, you will see uh, blue lines, you know, going across the ocean in various parts of the world, uh, because people are interested in measuring it. Uh, but in fact, you know, levels at the ocean now, even close to Fukushima, are very, very low. I mean, I mean, if you're trying to measure it on the ocean, if you want to measure ocean radiation accurately, you need to take a water sample uh, and send it to a, a, an appropriately equipped laboratory. Uh, and uh, have it measured. And, and that usually takes quite a long time, you know, hours, uh, 24 hours or so, often to measure uh, radiation accurately in a, in a water sample. So um, people are curious. And so we do have some data about that. But our project really is measuring what we call uh, ambient radiation. It is environmental radi radiation. Generally, the, the um, basic, you know, standard is to measure radiation about one meter above the ground. And, and all of this radiation, gamma radiation, et cetera, particularly uh, from the environment will then uh, be detected by uh, the Geiger counter sensor. Uh, but measuring on the ocean, people are curious and they wanna know. Uh, and the fact was right after the disaster, particularly in April, uh, the there was a lot of very, very highly contaminated water being discharged from the Fukushima Daiichi plant, uh, which led to higher concentrations in the ocean than, than ever before, really. Uh, really, now it's come back, you know, you'd have to, you know, it, it's actually very, very close to normal now. It's hard for people to believe that. It's very close to normal now. But uh, certainly at the beginning, uh, after the accident, it was extremely high. Uh, 
And at that point, you could have probably measured a lot of radiation uh, with the Bigaigi if you held it above the ocean right, you know, on the coast in front of Fukushima Daiichi. But now we, we are in very well networked with ocean researchers in Japan and abroad. And uh, there's a lot of, of good information, accurate information about, um, about what's in the ocean now. Yeah. Um, and I know that there have been uh, samples being taken, but part of the report that you talk about as well is there isn't a lot of transparency. So even though it seems like um, TEPCO and the government is doing readings, there is not a lot of discussion with stakeholders about this problem. And there's yeah. there's not a lot of disclosure about exactly what the readings are or exactly how they're measuring, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, earlier we were talking about narratives and describing things over time. And uh, uh, in fact, you know, there has been a lot of change over time since the disaster in 2011 in terms of the kind of information that's provided, who's providing it, why, and for whom. And initially after the disaster, we, we felt there was simply not enough uh, information at all. And over time, the government and TEPCO both have provided more and more information. Uh, but we believe that it's important to have independent third-party confirmation of all of these kinds of measurements. And that's what SafeCast's role is. Certainly in the case of ambient uh, radiation, what we measure above the ground, which we can map with our BGIGs, um, we consider it to be a very important independent uh, measurement. And I think that's been accepted over time by the major agencies, by the IAEA, by European agencies, by you know agencies in the United States. They understand uh, the role and the importance of what we're doing. And a lot of that is uh, a social need for information. I mean, there's a, a scientific need. The scientists, if they have this data, they can figure out what's going on. But the public needs to know and they need help with making their own decisions. So there is a lot of information, but not enough independent information and especially about some crucial things. And we're talking today about this water that has been stored on site in tanks at Fukushima Daiichi. Uh, and the government announced uh, in April that it had decided to allow TEPCO to uh, dilute this and then release it to the ocean. Uh, and this has been a contentious issue for years. So uh, our, our point is, yeah, you know, there's TEPCO measurement and there's government measurement, but we really think uh, absolutely independent third-party measurement and monitoring of this stuff is essential, uh, certainly for the confidence on the part of the public and also to ensure the accuracy of the data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll talk about more of the key points in a second. Mm -hmm. We have a question from Wendy on Facebook. Have you worked with educators to develop lessons for students? I would love to collaborate mm -hmm. with something along those lines. Also, can we get the Bento Geiger counters? Can they be borrowed? Can they be bought? Um, great questions, Wendy. <clears throat> um, the short answer is yes. We've done a lot of education programs. Um, from our own workshops, for instance, we've, we have developed workshops that are appropriate for elementary school children, uh, which we just did a workshop uh, this past uh, last week, uh, sponsored by uh, Panasonic, which we ended up doing online. And uh, we have another one coming up for uh, Mori, which uh, the Mori Building 
company, Roppongi Hills, which has an ongoing summer science program for kids. So we have uh, workshop, uh, you know, formats that we do with children. Also for high school, we have done a course uh, for Aoyama Gakuen at the university level for several years as well. And a few years ago, um, we worked with an educational consultant from the United States who was developing uh, science education modules, STEAM education modules. And we've worked with them to uh, develop uh, modules on radiation. So the short answer is yes, we've done a lot. And uh, we, we, we think that's one of our, you know, skills now is actually education for that. Um, happy if you want to collaborate, maybe, you know, we can talk about it. Um, you know, we, when we haven't had face-to-face -face workshops since before the, you know, coronavirus outbreak, but, um, you know, when we do those, especially we need help and, um, you know, maybe that's something you want to want to think about. Uh, the B Geige, the Bento Geiger counter, uh, they have been sold as kits uh, online, and uh, there's a company called Kit Hub which sells uh, electronic kits for uh, uh, STEM education, STEAM education, and uh, they're still available there. Uh, but there's always always an issue. Uh, we do lend them out to people as well. I mean, we have our office in Shibuya and. I guess we end up lending them more to people like journalists than to others, but uh, we could certainly uh, talk about what it is you want to do and, and, and see how to get you a big Ige. Wonderful. Great question. Um, yeah. All right. Let's talk uh, more specifically about what you cover in the PDF. Um, so no mm. trust without transparency. So <laughs> the crux of the problem, as you've seen from your research, and you've been writing about this uh, with J Japan Times and on Safecast <clears throat> well before now, since 2018 yes. in the pre-stage, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, this issue of transparency, as I mentioned, you know, um, for us, it's central openness, transparency. If anything... Uh, our major, you know, the, the major thrust, our major concern, what we're trying to accomplish in the world is to uh, persuade people, government, institutions of the importance of transparency. And uh, so many institutions and governments, they just seem to be allergic to it. There's, there's concern that, you know, information gets out, then they'll lose control or it'll open them up to criticism, et cetera. But for something like the Fukushima disaster, we think it should be clear that it's absolutely essential. And the big problem uh, for Fukushima uh, has been trust. Uh, and, and as we were mentioning, I was mentioning early on, um, basically because of the missteps of government and TEPCO, they lost trust very early, within weeks of the disaster. I mean, especially if you were here at the time, or even people around the world, uh, the disaster is happening on Saturday the 12th, you know, everyone's saying, it's, everything's fine, it's going to be under control, it's concerned, but it's under control, and the following day, boom, uh, reactor explodes uh, on, on global TV. And it's like, well, you said everything was fine, you know? So this was shocking. And then after that, uh, so often, uh, the official spokespeople would be giving contradictory information or, or incorrect information uh, or downplaying the seriousness of the disaster. So, um, you know, this, all of these things destroy trust. And, and we say that trust is not a renewable resource. Once you lose trust, it may be impossible to get it back. Uh, and for us, uh, we see the SafeCast project as a trust building uh you know, activity as a trust building project. And, and the trust has to come from citizens towards each other. 
and and if what the citizens are finding with their own measurements and their own information if that matches what the government says then they will trust that government information uh, more as well so it should be seen as a win-win if the government is not trying to conceal anything if they're doing their job right they should have nothing to fear and we find a, a lot of support for this idea again in these international agencies that we we participate in workshops and conferences and meetings etc we find a lot of support for that you know uh, at certain strata but yet it's not been made into policy so the water issue <clears throat> um maybe i should sort of give a brief summary of what the whole problem is i think a lot of, a lot of your viewers know yep that, maybe that not everyone great. does. Yeah. Uh, just can I just touch on that trust issue? Yeah. Uh, a little bit because uh, we mentioned stakeholders, and one of the key stakeholders and the IEA, the international body that oversees I, IAEA, IAEA yes. um, mm -hmm. also says that one of their reasons to say this plan is okay is if there is communication with stakeholders. And when we're talking about stakeholders for this issue, one of the problems with trust has been the local fishermen were not told mm -hmm. when water has been released before. And mm -hmm. so that already in the past has developed kind of a mistrust from maybe the, the key stakeholders, the local people, the local fisher people. Yeah. Uh, one of the big questions is uh, who is acknowledged uh, by, let's say, government or TEPCO as stakeholders. And, of course, government is a stakeholder. TEPCO is a stakeholder. Uh, they understand that the fisheries, the fishermen's cooperatives, uh, are also stakeholders. They understand that the local population are also stakeholders. But really, uh, stakeholders in this case are actually global. Almost anyone who can be impacted by it or who could be impacted by the precedents set by decisions made regarding Fukushima. And this is one of the things we're trying to point out. Um, it's, um, yeah, the IAEA, I mean, we don't want to jump ahead too, too, too much, but when the plan was announced by the Japanese government in April that they would approve this uh, dilution and discharge plan. And again, this had been talked about for years. The IAEA, I think back in 2013, actually said, you should think about diluting this and having a controlled discharge. Otherwise, you're going to have to deal with this water. And it could be a bigger risk by keeping it in the tanks. You know, that was something 2013. So this, these ideas have been, you know, discussed for, for years. And um, we felt, and, and I, as you mentioned, I did a lot of writing about this before, an extensive report, uh, basically 2018, uh, a brief sort of uh, op-ed uh, for Japan Times, and then a much more detailed technical report uh, on the SafeCast blog about, well, what are the issues here? Uh, they say it's got tritium and, uh, you know, what do we know about tritium and what's the scientific consensus? So we, we discussed this a lot. Um, but, you know, shortly after the Japanese government made their announcement in April, the IAEA uh, director general said, yes, we think it's a good idea and we're going to help them you know, uh, to make sure that it, the monitoring is done well before, during, and after, et cetera, et cetera. And the American United States uh, State Department uh, also made a similar statement. We think it's great, you know, and, and we appreciate the transparency that they're showing, et cetera. And our reaction is, well, is, is, that, is there really enough transparency here to, to complement in that way? 
uh, because, you know, we would say that uh, uh, before the decision had been made or approved, uh, all of the, the detailed plan, the technical plan for diluting and releasing this water should have been made public, should have been debated. These conversations should have invited, should have, should have involved the broad uh, spectrum of stakeholders from local residents to even uh, neighboring countries, some of whom, Korea and uh, South Korea and, and People's Republic of China, immediately protested the decision. Uh, they, they should have a say to some degree, uh, as would other countries on the Pacific Rim. Uh, and uh, so there was no technical plan and no monitoring plan. There should have been a very clear, detailed, and we say inclusive monitoring plan that would include independent bodies, maybe SafeCast, although, like I said, we're not really so well equipped for measuring water, but there's lots of laboratories, university laboratories, and also citizen-run organizations around the world that do have that competency. So this should have all been in place before any official body or, or government uh, said, yes, we think it's fine. But they basically said, yes, we think it's fine. And if you look, and I point this out in, in our report, if you parse the diplomatic language, and this requires a certain kind of antenna, um, it, it's when they say we uh, are confident, I mean, the actual, we're confident that we will see further transparency or this kind of language, which is kind of like saying you better be transparent. You better, you better make sure that you're doing this transparently. So th these are all issues that are that are connected uh, with the response. But we think, um, you know, a lot more information, a lot more detailed technical and uh, plans for the release itself and also for the monitoring itself should have been in place. And we stress that it's important. We think it's essential that the monitoring plans include as many independent bodies as possible uh, and that it can't just be window dressing. You know, we will make the measurements and we'll, then we'll send them to you and you can sign off. That's not what we want. We want real involvement in actually deciding what needs to be monitored, how, how often, uh, and who gets to uh, approve or, or reject those measurements. So this is a big issue. And this is, it's a little unprecedented, uh, not totally unprecedented, but it's a bit unprecedented. And I'll, I'll point out that uh, in the case of the Lahag uh uh, the French nuclear facility that has been pumping lots of tritiated water, tritium, into uh, the English Channel for for decades. Uh, there is a citizen-run organization called ACRO, which has been centrally involved in the monitoring, uh, you know, as a uh, citizen uh, civic society stakeholder. And uh, there is precedent for that. But but we find, you know. We're afraid that the government and TEFCO will just say, oh, well, we'll have this local laboratory uh, that we know, and they're probably on our side, and, uh, you know, actually we're paying them or something. So uh, that's the kind of thing that will try to be passed off as transparent. Yeah, that's a, it's the really disturbing uh, lack of community engagement, lack of stakeholder engagement outside yeah. people that already agree with you. That That is yeah. the worrying part. Uh, yeah. Let's yeah. let's talk about the, the tanks themselves, the choice yeah. to store them as is, the current problem. Um, it's they're going to be full by next summer. That's the pressing issue, right? Yeah. Um, so... To go back to the beginning, um, and I just want to point out, we should talk more about the fisheries cooperatives after this because they're crucial and they have, you know, very important input. Um, 
The big problem is when the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant was built, when the construction was decided, and this was decades ago, 1970s, basically is when it's in the peak of construction, the, it's, it was on a cliff. The, the site is actually a cliff to the ocean. And uh, it was decided by the engineers and approved by government regulators, et cetera, that they could cut this cliff down to bring the nuclear power plant closer to the to sea level to make it easier to pump the cooling water, et cetera. And that was, you know, kind of what we say a technocratic decision. Uh, it has economic benefits and some technical benefits, but they didn't think through the implications, we'd say. And of course, maybe it would have been fine for a long time. But even from the beginning, the Fukushima nuclear power plant required uh, pumps and wells around the reactor buildings to, to pump out groundwater. Uh, there's a whole series of what they call subdrains that were there from the beginning. It was just part of the design and it was working as designed until the disaster. Uh, when the disaster happened, of course, the tsunami caused massive uh, damage to the power plant. And that was one of the direct causes of uh, the explosions and the meltdowns. Uh, but also earthquake uh, seemed and the explosions seemed to have cracked the foundations of the reactor buildings and allowed groundwater to leak in. In other words, if they had built it on top of the of the uh, cliff, um, it would not have been down at the level where the groundwater layers are. So it's right at the level where that water can seep in, and it began to seep in. Now, they have to pump water through the damaged reactors to keep the melted fuel cool. Uh, of course, when the plant's operating, there's a constant flow of cooling water, and it was the fact that that uh, stopped because uh, the the, the power supply was uh, damaged, destroyed, and they, they used batteries for a while. And after that, uh, there was no way to keep the pumps running, to keep the water circulating, to keep the plant cool. And they tried all sorts of things using fire trucks, et cetera. But um, ultimately, it was the cooling water issue that led to the meltdown. Well, they still are cooling this stuff. It's melted down there, and they've found some of it. Uh, they have to keep water running through. Uh, and they can run that through and pump it out, uh, and there is a, uh, a fairly sophisticated uh, system for removing the radionuclides that you know enter that water as it gets in contact with this melted fuel. Uh, it's a series of systems for removing most of the radionuclides that we're concerned with. And one of the big ones is called ALPS. Uh, and it says they can remove 60 radionuclides of concern. But what they found was as they were pumping the water through, there was more water than they had put in. Well, that means that there's water leaking in. So there's this water leakage problem. And this, they've tried different ways to deal with maybe sealing the cracks or finding ways to do that, but it's been impossible to do that. So they have this constant leakage problem. Uh, they decided at one point they would make this frozen earthen dam, freeze the earth down to like 30 meters under the ground, and that could help keep the water from coming in. And that's been partially successful. They can sort of control the water level, but there's still this water, a constant supply of, of uh, uh, contaminated water that's being pumped out of these reactor buildings. And they've been storing them in these thousands of tanks on site. And they've had to build more tanks. It's called a tank farm. Uh, if you look at the photos, if you look at it, you'll just see, you know, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these tanks. And yes, uh, even back in 2017 or so, TEPCO was warning that they would run out of space within about two years. Now, they didn't yet. 
uh, and 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 last year at the time of this decision, and this year they're saying yes, we will run out within about two years. So we have to do something very soon. Uh, there is some risk to keeping this water in the tanks. You could imagine some catastrophe, another earthquake, some other disaster that could break them open and you'd have this big flood of, of uh, radioactive water flooding the site and then going to the ocean. That would be the kind of catastrophic release that people are hoping to avoid. Uh, so since the beginning, like around 2013, when um, uh, the discussion was first made to dilute this water and release it, um, you know, the, the, the argument in favor of that was that this is safer. Uh, you can control it. You can dilute it to a level where it is not very highly radioactive, where it is, you know, less even than is being released from nuclear power plants and facilities all around the world. Uh, you can control this and do it over the course of years, little by little, and this will have the the least damaging, uh, you know, impact on the environment. And you know, that may be true. It may be safer to release it this way than to have a catastrophic rupture of tanks. It, one of the other ideas was to vaporize it and let it go into the atmosphere. That has its problems. Every other idea they had, they looked at five scenarios, burying it deep under the earth, um, you know, making a big trench and putting it in. It may be the least objectionable approach. And that is the only language that we'll use. We, we don't say, I don't even want to say best approach or a good approach. It's the least, maybe the least objectionable. Uh, but if they're going to do that, then we need a lot of information about what's going to happen. Um, one of the arguments that um, is, is being used and has been used uh, by TEFCO and government and, and others uh, is that tritium, which is basically radioactive hydrogen, uh, and it means it mixes uh, with oxygen, uh, behaves very, very similarly to water. It, it, it behaves much like water. Uh, that this is one of the least um, risky radionuclides. Uh, and therefore, you know, the potential of damage, health damage, uh, is, is much less with tritium. And when I say much less, we mean, you know, orders of magnitude less. Uh, this is the official scientific consensus about tritium. Uh, and that, you know, well, it may be true, uh, but there are still unknowns about this and right. when you're going to can, can i just interject for a sec uh yeah. paul mobley has some great comments from youtube thanks paul um he said concentration ratio is the issue and why they think it's okay and this is something i came across yes. a few times um people often say it's been a common practice in nuclear power plants to release uh contaminated water at certain levels, but the usual habit, the usual practice is 1.5 to 2 trillion becquerels per year. And this plan is 22 trillion becquerels a year. So 10 times the amount over 30 years. It's very different from usual practices at a, at a non- damaged nuclear power plant as far as i can work out is that right uh i would say yeah he's got a, an important point there um there is this argument that you know nuclear facilities all over the world release this water with tritium constantly uh and uh, therefore and these concentrations should be comparable uh but in fact the total uh you know radioactivity is very very large it's a very large amount being released, uh, planned to be released to the ocean. So uh, they can dilute it 
you know, to a level that's below the regulatory limit, and that's what they say they're going to do. Uh, but in fact, it's a very, very large amount of radioactivity. Um, but we can't, un here's the other thing, you know, it is true that this uh, treated water and other radioactive water is being released constantly for decades uh, into the ocean uh, as part of the design of the system. They're saying, oh, this should be okay. Uh, and, and I think we need to rethink that as well. You could say, well, maybe it is innocuous, but if there's a better approach, we don't, we shouldn't keep using the ocean as like a, a, a garbage can, right? Uh, it really is a problem. There's other issues related as well regarding the precedent it sets. Um, but yeah, there, the argument from TEPCO and the government is that the concentration levels at the point of release will be relatively low. And, and this is a fairly non-risky radionuclide to people. So therefore it, it should be okay. And yeah. we, you can read, just, you can find a lot, a lot yeah. of comments from people supporting this who right. say, yeah, there's no problem. It's safe. There's no problem. Why is anybody complaining? Right. But and we're saying, it, hey, it there's goes, a lot of issues. Still. Yeah. It goes to your argument, too, of setting a dangerous precedent that if Japan and uh, talking about the IAEA, uh, the mm. way they monitor is very uh, honor system based. And yes. very, very different from other situations. And if Japan sets this precedent of just trust us, we're going to do it and just trust us that we're going to do it fine, then there's no stopping other countries from doing the same thing. Right. 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 And th this is and these are all con connected. Um, um, there are certain nations that um, don't uphold their let's say, responsibilities regarding um, release of nuclear material to the atmosphere of the ocean uh, that don't do it very well. And, and I would point out uh, the Russian Federation has had several instances over the past several years, uh, one in, in 2017, um, many, almost every uh, national laboratory uh, in Europe detected uh, ruthenium uh, sort of a radioactive, uh, radioactive gaseous form. And uh, they said, wow, well, where is this coming from? This is not normal. And they could analyze it and trace it back. So it looks like it came from Russia, from the Ural Mountains. But Russia said, nope, not us. We didn't do anything. It's not us. And everyone's saying, hey, it, it looks like you. And actually, as uh, if the years went on, huge international research you know, uh, project actually really, really <laughs> said it was from Russia. And Russia to this day refuses to acknowledge that it released it. Uh, and then a few years ago, there was an explosion of a like a missile test, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in northern Russia. And then Russia was saying, no, no, nothing there. Uh, well, there was something, but we're not going to tell you what it was. Uh, and they actually went so far to say, oh, you know, we have this agreement to notify regarding, you know, accidents and releases connected with the peaceful use of nuclear weapons, but uh, of nuclear radiation. But this was actually a weapons program. So we don't have to tell you anything. Uh, so there's that. Uh, then uh, about a month or so ago, there was concern about a nuclear power plant uh, in China. Uh, ultimately, the expert consensus was that there was nothing really that concerning happening, but um, was like, well, you know, China should have come very quickly and been very transparent of what's going on. But again, it was just saying, no, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. Uh, so this is the problem. Uh, and Japan went about this decision making in what we think is a fairly unilateral way.
Now, they had some support from IAEA and others, but they did not consult with the neighbors. And there are lots of international treaties, uh, in addition to IAEA agreements, which specifically stipulate the kinds of consultations that need to happen in the case of what's called a transboundary release. In other words, when radioactive material is released in a way that it can cross from one country's territory into another. Uh, and there are lots of uh, treaties, including the, the, the London Treaty, regarding uh, discharge of, of things like radioactive material to the ocean which have similar clauses. But these are all sort of gray and difficult to enforce. Uh, most of them are, again, on the honor system, like most of our international uh, agreement system. And the IEA, there's the, the safeguards, which is preventing nuclear uh, proliferation. Uh, they can be backed by the, the National Security Council and actually could lead potentially lead to military action. Uh, we're unfortunately able to avoid that. But, um, but in case of uh, nuclear energy and other use of nuclear radiation, it is purely the honor system. And if nations don't, you know, uh, do what they have agreed to do, there's nothing the rest of the world can do except maybe bring diplomatic pressure. So it is it is tricky. People think, oh, the IA should stop them. Well, they can't. You know, yeah. uh, what they can do is offer assistance only if requested. Uh, and in terms of some of the other issues, uh, we, we think that if the IAEA would make a judgment as to whether or not this is uh, classified as a transboundary release, then uh, a lot of other uh, processes can be, you know, set into motion. Uh, but that would require a member state of the IAEA, and, and, and this would probably mean it has to be a fairly influential one, a big country, uh, making that request directly to the IAEA. So can you uh, make a determination if this is a transboundary release or not? Uh, and we don't see anyone stepping up to do that. Uh, perhaps South Korea will, although they seem to have backed off on their initial criticism. The People's Republic of China might be in a position to do that, and I think they are the least transparent nation <laughs> in the world. Uh, you know, I hate to say that they, you know, have maybe agreements and law on their side, but they could be in a position to do that. It could be beneficial if they did. Uh, but um, that's a sort of decision that has to be made. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, it. whenever you do research, uh, you guys are collecting your own data. So you mm -hmm. you have some some insights from your own data. Um, yeah. But when you look at the reaction from international organizations like Greenpeace, they're very yeah. against this practice. Uh, yeah. The Friends of the Earth came mm. out very strongly against it. The Fisher person organizations all across Japan, not right. just in Fukushima, came out strongly right. against it. The United Nations said they were severely disappointed with the decision. So it's, you know, when you look at a lot of different organizations as well, there's obviously a need for more discussion, more open discussion, more transparency, yeah. right? I, I think so. And I and we point out in our report um, that there's a history of bad faith on the part of TEPCO regarding this issue. And I will point again, as I was doing sort of intense research on the issue uh, back in 2018, uh, I spoke with uh, people from TEPCO. Uh, I had at that point gotten to know a few people and was was giving candid criticism 
uh, about the issues and said, hey, this is the water issue. Uh, I don't know how you're dealing with this, but I don't think you're dealing with it well. Um, this is what people need to know. And, and I'm writing this. Can you help me with information? And I asked specifically, uh, can you give me information showing exactly what is in those tanks? Because uh, you're saying it's just tritium. But researchers, very you know, high-level researchers in other parts of the world, um, would like to know, would like to have access to that water, to those tanks, to take samples and measure it, and confirm what's in them, et cetera. Well, long story short, I, I was told um, there was only tritium. Uh, here's the information we have, and it was sort of estimates. Uh, I don't know how they actually derive the evidence. There's just tritium. We're only talking about tritium. We're only talking about tritium. In all of the news, all of the public statements regarding this potential release of the water, um, the only thing that was discussed was tritium. But then in late 2018, we learned that there were quite a number of other radionuclides of concern, including strontium, ruthenium, you know, lots of other things. Uh, and, and, it, it, like 70% of the tanks, over 70% of the tanks had other radionuclides in them uh, besides tritium, uh, and they had to deal with this. And, you know, I was angry, uh, incredibly angry, because I felt I had been directly lied to. And I asked them and, you know, had several meetings with people involved with this, with engineers dealing with the water, and they all only talked about tritium. And then we learned that, oh, this had been uh, a lie the, the whole time. If you go back and I cite this in our report, oh, there is a report early on 2013 or 14 that says, ah, these systems are not working as well. And they, uh, uh, you know, said they would rectify that. And over time, the system performance did, did improve. So uh, after the initial couple of years, apparently the systems were working better, but they have to go through and repurify all this water. And they did tests last year and they said, yes, we can repurify it and, and then it'll only be tritium. And we're saying, well, you want us to trust you again on that? I mean, yeah. why should we trust you? Because you literally lied to us. And I was at an IAEA meeting shortly after that decision. And I I brought this up. I said, look, you know, you're talking about trust and journalists need to trust the national spokespeople. And, you, you know, you need to build trust, need to build trust. And I said, but what happens when they lie to you? And, and if you are the, you know, PR person for your government, you know, uh, trying to persuade people that, you know, the, the danger is under control and you're being lied to by the people who are giving you information, that's going to certainly destroy all of your trust and, and you will also be angry about this. So this is the problem. There is a long history of bad faith on this issue. So this yeah. is why we think there has to be very, very clear, inclusive, uh, independent monitoring. Um, can I touch on the fisheries cooperatives again? Yes, yes, go ahead. Yeah, because they are one of the biggest stakeholders. And and uh, as many people know, after the accident, uh, all, I mean, food shipment from Fukushima was stopped. Fishing, uh, fish uh, shipment was stopped. Uh, monitoring programs were put in place to, to measure these things for radiation, measure, you know, agricultural crops and fish radiation. And over time, uh, it's been demonstrated there is abundant data, and, and I trust it, largely because it's mainly local people who are doing the measuring. Uh, I trust that the, the fish is uh, is safe to eat. It took a long time uh, for for this to happen, but uh, basically uh, most fish from marine parts of Fukushima are, are arguably as safe and demonstrably because they're being measured, where in a lot of places they're not being measured, as safe as anywhere else. I think this is a big issue, and the fisheries cooperatives know this, but the problem is what people believe. 
what they think. And and Fukushima is is the name is just associated with a nuclear disaster, with risk, with you know health, with all sorts of other problems, uh, understandably. So uh, the market for for marine products from Fukushima, of course, has been seriously damaged. But it took them years, over years, they rebuilt the trust step-by-step step, demonstrating you know, their efforts, demonstrating what they're doing to ensure that the fish would be safe enough to eat. And now if this uh, water is released, regardless of whether tritium is dangerous or not, they're saying this will destroy the reputation as well. I want to point out that there have been uh, two other you know, instances, two other programs uh, where the fisheries cooperatives agreed to have water released from the Fukushima plant if it had been monitored and the radiation levels confirmed by third-party laboratories. Uh, one is something called the bypass. They have a series of wells up on the hillside uh, slope above the plant that intercepts water before it gets to the plant. And this water should should not be contaminated. Basically, uh, it's groundwater. There may be some minor degree of uh, cesium in it, but uh, this water goes to a tank. They, they monitor it. Uh, and then if it's uh, at the appropriate limit, uh, then it can be released. So the fisheries cooperatives agreed to that. So they get statements every week or a month or so and look at the measurements and say, okay, you can release it. Then there are these sub-drains that I mentioned, which are, are uh, surrounding the reactor. That water's pumped up, it is purified, it is checked, and then the fisheries cooperatives also allow that to be released. Uh, so this has been going on for years, at least since 2014, maybe even 2013. So there is a precedent for the fisheries cooperatives to accept independent monitoring uh, uh, and and then you know to stop opposing the release of water, but they understand public opinion. Uh, there's a, a, a it's easier to make the argument that this water they're agreeing to release is is not really going to be very contaminated if at all. But this water in the tanks it's such a a public issue. They know that no matter what happens, it will destroy their market. And notably, you noted this. Uh, Around the time the decision was being made uh, by the Japanese cabinet, the leader of the National uh, Fisheries Cooperatives, the national organization, stated strong opposition. And I would see in news reports, et cetera, oh, there's some opposition from local fishermen. And I say, no, it's not just local fishermen. The entire marine products industry of Japan sees this as a huge risk to its marketability. So this is a problem. This is a problem. And they have to be somehow all of these concerns have to be uh, properly addressed. Yeah, for sure. And this is not this is a huge uh, economic issue for Japan, not only in negative branding and the idea that even if it's if it's, you know, calculated and it is technically safe, the branding damage of not only exports, of course, but also internally in yes. japan and you're not only talking about the fishing industry directly you're talking about all the associated industries as far as seaweed and everything yes. connected to the oceans salt yes i mean there's huge connections everywhere all around Jap japan in terms of culture and tradition and food yeah yeah major um yeah so so you know i say and i tell People, and I think I mentioned this before, um, I feel comfortable eating food from Fukushima um, or eating the fish 
because I spent a lot of time there and I know the people and I see the efforts of the people who are growing food and 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 who are fishing and I see their efforts and and they are concerned for their own families and they've learned a lot and they're doing a good job at this. Uh, so I'm fine with it. But I would I totally understand uh, anyone's resistance to eating something from Fukushima. Uh, I, 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 I thought it was distasteful when South Korea used this as a cudgel during the Olympics to say, oh, we're going to bring our own food because I would challenge South Korean government to say, show me your measurement data on which you're basing this. Where's the scientific data on which you're basing this? Because I would like to see the testing of the Korean food too. You know, I don't know what's in that food. Um, so, but only because I've spent the time to get to know the producers and the testers and to see how it's working that I feel comfortable with that. Uh, but I totally understand people's resistance to it. And, and the fisher and the cooperatives themselves, they really see this as, as a, a potential fatal blow to their entire livelihood and, and, and centuries of you know, fisheries uh, in Tohoku. Right. I think there is an underlining distrust of the the system as it's it's been uh, run from TEPCO, which was bailed out by taxpayers, but still mm. it's run like a business. And it mm. seems like in many parts of the process, the profits given back to shareholders takes more emphasis on the process than what benefit or negative consequences there will be for normal Japanese people who are actually paying <clears throat> a lot of money to this right. company, right? Right. Yeah. The basically the the national government uh, is 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 the major shareholder in Tepico. Basically, Tepico was going to collapse. Uh, so the national government now, I think, owns uh, well, over 50% anyway of, of, of TEPCO. Uh, so this is us. This is us. And uh, we're all paying our taxes to support this. Um, yeah, I would agree that um, TEPCO was very concerned about getting back to selling electricity and uh, would like to put this accident behind it. The national government clearly wants to put it behind it. Uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe, you know, years ago was saying, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's all taken care of. It's, you know, under control. Anyone who's there would say, well, it's not as bad as it was. It's a, it's a lot better than it was in 2011. But, you know, there's still a lot of issues that are, that, that need to be dealt with. And we don't really know how they're going to be dealt with. Uh, so, you know, I do also detect uh, a different a difference in sort of mindset or attitude between people that I talk to from the central office of TEPCO in Tokyo uh, compared to people who live and work in Fukushima for TEPCO. And I do think people who are in Fukushima are much more aware, are much more cognizant and feel a greater sense of responsibility towards local people, towards helping things get better. Uh, but this is not always, I mean, if you look at the PR language, it is generally, oh, you know, we apologize. We did, we did something bad, but we've changed and we're doing, we turned over a new leaf and we're a new company. They're saying that. And yet, you know, even in the discussion about this water stuff, you know, there's still not enough transparency. Uh, and, and again, I mentioned this allergy to transparency in, in institutions that is not just Japan and it's not just TEPCO. It's all over the world. Uh, they think they're being transparent. They feel they are more transparent than they've ever been before. So please cut us some slack. And when I, I had long discussions, uh, you know, email back and forth with someone from TEPCO after I released the report and uh, his approach was, yeah, but we're trying, but we're trying. 
but we're trying. <laughs> I'm saying, yes, but that's not enough. It's not enough. It's got to be done better. You know, you have to look at the best examples of transparency in the world, and you have to do better than that in a situation like this. And, and for, for monitoring, it's going to mean you get local people, you get you open it up to research labs, researchers all over the world, you open it up to citizens groups, you open it up to people who, who you know don't like you, you open it up to your adversaries uh, because, you know, you need adversaries who are going to tell you the truth and, and raise the difficult issues. But they really just want to sort of quieten it down and hope that people will forget over time. They're really hoping that people's memories are short. And, and this is something I think we can't, we can't accept. We have to keep reminding them that this issue is ongoing and, uh, and try to flip this around into uh, a case study in the benefits of transparency. Absolutely. And your uh, report does such a wonderful job of going through all the issues step by step, addressing what the concerns are, what the actual information has been, giving links to things that they've actually said at TEPCO and checking that information yeah. with what is is actually happening, um, saying that they're opening open to talking to stakeholders and open communication with the community, but then closing access to even having discussions with local stakeholders. So well, <laughs> what they say and what they do is not consistent. And mm. that needs to be discussed. Well, right? look, you know, they have had hundreds of meetings with local communities to discuss this issue. And they'll say, we got all this feedback. We got all this feedback. But we do not see from them at any point uh, where they change their uh, policies or their plan based on feedback from uh, local stakeholders. We don't see that. Uh, these are basically uh, opportunities for them to talk to communities, to try to persuade them, to try to get them on board with this idea. And they'll listen to opposition and there will be activists in the audience who will maybe be even yelling and screaming, you know, but I don't see uh, any reflection of uh, input from local stakeholders or international stakeholders on the plan or the proposal or the timeline or any of it. Uh, so it, it's similarly like they have, they said, uh, you know, other researchers that we know uh, have said, well, why don't they just build more tanks, you know, adjoining the site? Because this is all now this uh, waste uh, storage area for the decontamination waste. Why don't they just build more tanks right there? And TEPSCO said, oh, we investigated this, but this was not feasible for, for some reasons. But we don't see that it was actually adequately investigated. <laughs> Sorry, I'm lovely, having an lovely alert. Lovely ringtone. No. <laughs> it's Happens an alert. We're, we're having a landslide warning for our oh area. Oh, my we've, goodness. We've had so much heavy rain, but... Yeah. Well, we'll yeah. have to... And a, a landslide would be the example of the kind of catastrophic thing that could happen to, like, burst open tanks, although it's well, not that, likely to happen there. That <laughs> yeah, is... But, well, but that's you know, one of the concerns, right? Is right. storing it on site, you can yeah. have yeah. not only natural disasters, but actually you might have a terrorist attack, yeah. which could release it, Yeah, you know? For instance, for instance. Uh, but anyway, TEPCO and the government are saying this is the best plan. This is the safest way and we will do it safely and it will have, you know, no negligible uh, if effect on, on, on marine life and on people. And they're saying this 
And I said, well, can you show us the test data, you know, your, your, your estimates for, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the concentrations in the ocean at set distances from the release point? I asked them this in 2018. They said, oh, well, no, we don't have that. I said, okay, how about, you know, estimates of what's going to be in the fish at certain distances and the, you know, doses to, oh, well, we don't have that either. I said, what have you been doing all these years? You should have that information immediately ready. And then they're saying, oh, we have our environmental impact study. And it's simply a dispersal study. It's a simple, very elementary study of where the water would flow to. And it's not a real environmental impact study. N nothing like this should be approved without a full detailed environmental impact study that covers both terrestrial and ocean and, and every other possible contingency. And then they just have, they haven't done it. So it's like kind of, oh, we'll do that later. We'll do that later. But it's, you know, why should we trust that? We need to see those plans now and we need to see that they're open as possible and as, as inclusive as possible. I, I think, you know, every everything we're talking about is is so key and so important. But for me, the the basic structure of TEPCO being a company which is trying to give profits back to shareholders is part of the problem. That it, it really, if it is being funded by taxpayers, taxpayers need to have more access to decision-making process or at least transparency of what's actually happening and have a say in what's happening to their country and their environment and their ocean, not only now, but 30 years and beyond into the future. This yeah. just seems too big of a, of a conversation to be kept by a few people who already agree with each other yeah. on what's going to happen, right? Yeah, it's it, interesting. And it's compounded by this balkanization within Japanese government ministries where one ministry doesn't really collaborate well with the others. Um, for instance, I was surprised that when I wanted to talk to someone at the government about this, um, I needed to go to METI. And METI, of course, is, you know, uh, basically economy and technology and, and that sort of thing. And I said, why are we talking to you about the ocean? It's, oh, because this is connected to energy production. So therefore, it's our our responsibility. And I thought, well, how, why isn't the fisheries agency playing a major role in this? And why isn't the environment environmental agency playing a major role? Because this is technically part of energy production. So, And they don't have the competency for this. That's the other thing we see. None of these agencies really had the competency for like disaster cleanup or disaster response. Uh, so we're seeing this play out. We've seen a lot of dysfunction in Japanese government uh, over the past few years, certainly regarding coronavirus as well. And they're all sort of stemming from similar issues which have to do with this lack of coordination among ministries, this sort of territorial behavior uh, among, among ministries. And, and it's the public who really bears the brunt of that. And run by business people who you know, the, huge the influence new, from business. The new chairman uh, who's going to become the chairman and the chairman position has been empty for a year. And uh, he comes just from the corporate sector. And right. why don't we have people, scientists, people from environmental agencies as part of their structure, making decisions at least? Why not? You know? Yes, yeah. why not? Uh, and and here's the thing. Um, in some places, things are a little more progressive. Um, in Europe, uh, in some countries, for instance, energy is nationalized. Uh, and if there is a mandate 
to in, involve, you know, in, environmental issues in decision making, then that will be reflected in the management of the energy production, although this is rarely the case. Is really rarely the case, but there are agreements. There's something called the Ar Arhus uh, Convention, uh, which was it came into of, of effect in about the year 2000, which says people have the right to participate in these decisions. They have the right to the information about the decisions, and and they have the right to to seek justice, to take energy producers or corporations or even the government to court if they're not given the information and the right to participate. In, in the decision making. Now, this is a fairly soft and non-binding, you know, uh, legal legal uh, agreement, but it is it is the precedent on which a lot of decisions are made in Europe regarding uh, stakeholder engagement, involvement, transparency, etc. And I, Japan's not a signatory. United States is not a signatory. But I think it it is the basis uh, upon which uh, change can be implemented. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's a huge, huge issue. I uh, really appreciate all the work that you and SafeCast are doing to try to create this dialogue between people who are policymakers and people who are in government and trying to get a logical rundown of all the key issues and make suggestions and give advice for how they can make the most of what they've already said they're going to do try to engage, try to be transparent, try to think about the long-term consequences, which are all key to sustainability and uh, so many other issues as well. Yeah. Uh, people need to know that they have the right. Uh, and and we've talked about this before. Um, a lot of people despair of trying to do something like uh, influence energy policy through the electoral process. It's difficult, but we can make a big influence based on our decisions of what we use, what we purchase, uh, where we live, etc. So this is really, you know, it's in our laps. Uh, it's up to people to demand um, cleaner sources of energy, to demand greater engagement and transparency, uh, to reject you know, systems or, or energy or products that don't meet those standards. Uh, this is, it's, it's, it may be a bit depressing that we have greater power as consumers than as citizens, but it's, it's really often the case. Yeah. Wow. So in America, you, you would often say, uh, make sure you investigate who you're electing into office. <laughs> a lot of us in Japan, long-term residents, we don't have the right to vote. Um, but you're right. We can vote with what we buy and where we buy our energy from. Now in Japan, we have the choice to choose our supplier of energy. We can choose renewable energy. We can choose more ethical companies. It takes a bit of research, but we can do that as consumers. So that's at least one thing we can do. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and. And there is more. I mean, continual. We need to demand. We, people need to make the demands on their elected officials and uh, journalists need to be more on the ball and understand the issues as well uh, and be able to ask the right questions and try to push for the right answers. So uh, there's a lot that remains to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Asby. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And definitely have a look at safecast.org and uh, read through this wonderful PDF, which is very clear and talks about all the key issues here. And we appreciate all the wonderful work you're doing, Asby. Thank you. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. 
Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.